This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is sponsored by the Union of British Columbia Performers. UBCP is an autonomous branch of the Alliance of Canadian Cinema, Television, and Radio Artists. For more about UBCP Actra, visit ubcp.com. That's ubcp.com. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart to the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Firminger, and today I am absolutely delighted to welcome Jonathan Lloyd Walker, JL Dub himself, to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Today, I'm hoping that Jonathan will help me solve a mystery. That mystery is this. How does an actor who attended the venerable Montreal Children's Theater, whose graduates include William Shatner and my mom, and who has a long and exciting acting filmography, simultaneously pursue acting and show running. You don't hear that often, actor showrunner. You don't come across it a great deal. You get a lot of actors who also direct and vice versa, but acting while showrunning, it's rare. I think Kevin Costner is doing it right now. Amanda Tapping's done it, but those examples are few and far between. Now, John, John, can I call you John? I call you John. Yeah, John, you Jonathan, sure JLW. Okay. Well, yep. so, so I'm moving on from Jonathan. We're getting less formal now into John. So John's lengthy filmography includes Red, where he played the special agents in charge of protecting the vice president from assassins, as well as The Thing, Smallville, The X-Files, The West Wing, Stargate, Degrassi, The Next Generation, The Outer Limits, The Killing, and Continuum. And most recently, TNT Snowpiercer, where he played a Taylor named Big John, a character who had an unfortunate end by way of an axe. R.I.P. Big John. But over the last decade, specific, specifically and especially, John has also been flexing his producer muscle on some of our industry's most critically acclaimed series, Continuum, Private Eyes, The Murders, Wu Assassins, and finally, Van Helsing which, incidentally, filmed parts of its fifth and final season in Slovakia immediately before the pandemic shut everything down. So today, I want to solve the mystery of the actor-showrunner. Or is it showrunner-actor? I'm not quite sure. I want to know how one aspect of his artistry serves the other half. And I want to get a glimpse into John's unique perspective and maybe if I'm really good, get some non-spoilery sneak peeks into Van Helsing's season five. Jonathan Lloyd Walker. John Lloyd Walker, JLW. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. 
I am so happy that we finally get to do this. We've been sort of threatening to do it for a long time, and then finally the day arrived. <laughs> and here it is. And here it is. So I did ask you before I hit, I hit record if you had gone to a, a, just to confirm what I'd read that you'd gone to Montreal Children's Theater, because my mom totally went to Montreal Children's Theater too, and it was such a formative part of her of her childhood and and uh you know run by people who really really cared about the craft of acting so a lot of cool people came out of that and you're one of them oh why thank you yes no it was um after i uh, arrived in canada from england because i've spent the first sort of 12 years of my life growing up in england uh, and i sort of caught the acting bug in england because um i went to school uh, with a family who I became uh, lifelong friends with, um, who had several kids who liked to perform and their mom directed plays. And I got really jazzed on the idea of being in front of an audience. Uh, and the kid, one of the kids of that family is Christian Bale. Hmm. Um, so, you know, we kind of grew up in this environment of wanting to do skits and plays and act the fool. And so when I came to Montreal, feeling very fish out of water, you know, uh, French culture that I'd never experienced before, and feeling a little bit like an outsider. Um, children's, Montreal Children's Theatre was something that was an opportunity for me to play and not be judged as different. And in fact, embraced for being a little weird and a little bit quirky. And uh, it was a good landing pad for me. Yeah. Okay, before we go back to your childhood, I, I skipped a very important step here because during the pandemic, I've been asking all of my guests from my heart, what used to be a rhetorical device just to start a conversation, but now I genuinely ask, how are you doing? How are you doing, John? Oh, that's a good question, and I'm glad you asked it. I, I, think, um, I think there's an ebb and flow to it. I think that there are days that feel a little bit depressing and a little bit hamster wheel. Um, you know, there's uh, a bit of Groundhog Day that goes on with a lack of a lack of um, you know variation. There's the, the experience of going off and seeing people and having things to go to uh, is taken away from you. And so there are days that are challenging, and then there's other days that I embrace because the kids are around a lot. I've got a lot of free time at the moment, and we spend a lot of time hiking and being out in nature and enjoying the opportunity to just be together. And uh, so you know it's challenging at times, and then at other times it's a total blessing. Yeah. So you're doing, honestly, it sounds like you're doing as well as can be expected, you know, given the fact that we are surviving a global pandemic. Um, yeah. Although I hope you're taking lots and lots of notes and that um, everything that's going on in the zeitgeist right now will appear in, in your future work in some way. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm really curious, though, how you responded to my intro. You know, because you are, from what I can tell, the first actor showrunner that we we're having on the podcast. You know, how do you, how do you respond to hearing yourself described like that? And how do you look at yourself? Um, you, you know, I think I've always been somebody who's wanted to challenge myself to new experiences and never to get kind of caught in a rut or caught in a single category. Um, and I'm always interested in the adventure of trying new things. And so, look, there's a lot of really wonderful role models for me in this category. You know, there's, if you look at places like Canada, there's, you know, people like Don McKellar, um, who has definitely written, created, acted in, and showrun his own material. Um, there's people like Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who, you know, exceptional talent, um, who I can only aspire to be 
half as talented as. And, um, you know, there's people out there doing this kind of work. And, and I just like the variability of being able to switch hats at times. I generally don't do it together. So in other words, I generally don't write and produce or show run a show that I then act in. Right. I try to really keep them as separate uh, lanes, if you will. Um, but I like the idea of, of having a number, like a, a you know bunch of hyphens in my description because it just means that I'm keeping things interesting. Yeah. Okay. But when you were when you were a little kid, when mm. you were playing at the Montreal Children's Theater, what did you say when asked, "What do you want to be when you grow up, John?" You know, I, I think I always, and I didn't really, as a young person, think that acting was a career. I thought it was a, a hobby, a pursuit. Um, and so I really, for many years, thought that I was going to end up doing something much more logical. Uh, pilot was something that I thought about for a while. Architect, uh, you know, working in, in news. And, uh, you know, those are things that, that called to me in a way. There's a logical side of my brain and then an, a, an artist side of my brain. And so I gave in to the logic for a while and, and did that. And um, it wasn't until after university that I really thought, well, no, hang on a second. I've been doing all these other things, but art has always been there for me. It's the thread that's kind of run through my life and has given me, like I said earlier, this comfort of, oh, I may not feel like I belong everywhere, but I certainly belong here mm. because different is good. And so it drew me back. And so acting was really the first part of getting into the arts and wanting to immerse myself in this world. So that, that was the entry point for me. Yeah. What was the stories that fascinated you when you were growing up? Because, you know, I look at your, I look at your filmography and I look at, at the stuff that you're producing. There is, there is sci-fi in there. There's darkness in there, you know, but were those some of the kinds of, of roles or stories that you were interested in, in your, in your, a, a, a young seedling growing up in Montreal? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I've always been drawn to, and it it really mirrors through a lot of the uh, work that I write. I'm really drawn to stories about identity, um, about people coming to terms with who they are, and, and maybe realizing that they're not who they thought they were or who other people think that they are. Uh, I think that's very much drawn from my experience of being an immigrant and feeling like I didn't entirely fit. Uh, when I arrived in this country. And also the other big recurring theme, the kind of stories I like to tell are a lot about um, parent-child um, distance. Because obviously when I moved from England, I left behind a father uh, and, a, and two brothers. And my family really did split down the middle. And uh, so I, I, it, that tends to play and resonate through a lot of my work as well, that idea of trying to mend broken family relationships. Does injecting it into your work has that helped you at all you know i can imagine it would help others who are going through going you know they're like that they can see their stories represented on screen and feel a bit less alone but what about for you as the creator of the world well i, th I think art in many ways is therapy i think it's therapy for the creator and i think it's therapy hopefully it's therapy for the you know the, the person who's receiving the art mm -hmm. um it's definitely been a way, a catharsis, a cathartic way for me to work through stuff. Um, certainly as an actor, you get to try on the shoes of all these different types of people with all these different types of problems and exercise some demons that way. But certainly it also is in the writing. Um, the ability to get inside that head. I mean, the most fascinating thing for me always, and it's a David Fincher lesson, is this idea of, 
you know, or, and it's also Mamet and a lot of the other greats that I aspire to be like, is the idea that if, if two people are having an argument, you have to be able to encompass both sides of that argument as if they're both equally valid. And so for me, sometimes if you're writing a scene between a parent and a child or a husband and a wife, and there's some disillusionment there, to be able to put yourself in the shoe of the, of the other person who's on the other side of that makes you empathetic to what they must have been going through. And I think I fixed some things with some of my family distance and issues by just being able to then do that. Say, well, wait a second, I, I'm judging them for behaving a certain way, but maybe there's layers to them that I haven't really looked at. And, um, and, and reasons for why they are the way they are. And it's helped me immensely and it's been a really valuable tool. Yeah. So at what stage or age did you make that declaration that I assume that all actors make, standing up tall and putting your arm out and saying, I'm going to be an actor. You know, when did that, I mean, isn't that how it works? I'm not an actor, but isn't that how it works? That you have to like make that declaration, I'm going to be an actor. When did that well, happen yes. for you? Well, there's sort of two different phases of it, I think. The, the first one was one of those early childhood plays in school in England. Mm -hmm. And I can remember it was like a Christmas pageant play or whatever it was. And I can remember being on stage in front of the rest of the school. And there was something that I did in the moment. And it caused a laugh to ripple through the crowd. Mm -hmm. And it was that moment of going, oh, wow, something I did impacted them. This is, a, oh, I like this feeling. So that was when I sort of the acting bug caught. But as far as when I really firmly planted, you know, my flag and the idea of this is what I, this is who I am, was probably not until I had moved to Vancouver, my sort of first stint in Vancouver, where all my friends were, you know, working in the industry or new to the industry or aspiring to get into the industry. And I came out and I started scene study and I was like, oh, yes, this is what I've been running around trying all these other hats on career wise this is what I need to be. I need to be here and do this. And that was when I really felt like, yeah, this is the path. So that's when you put your arm out and said, I'm going to be an actor. Yes. Yes. Okay. Please like, let me hold on to that belief that that happens in every single actor origin story. <laughs> so then right at, right at that point, then what, what kind of career did you want when you first began? Uh, you know, I, I didn't really know what was possible. Um, you know, I'd arrived in Vancouver with no real formal acting training, just, you know, obviously doing the children's theater and doing plays and doing skits and, you know, short films with my friends. I didn't really know what I could have as a career. So um, when I first arrived, I sort of, it was a grab bag of everything. I, I, you know, I managed by sheer luck to get an agent very quickly with nothing on my resume. Um, who started sending me out for auditions and I booked a couple of early things, but at the same time I was also doing extra work mm -hmm. and, you know, and I was trying to write scripts and I was doing scene study and I, I was just trying to figure out what I could make um, in terms of a career of it, of it all. And I think for the first few years, like most actors, I really struggled with, I don't know if I can make a living doing this and I had little part-time jobs here and there, but I, I did really start to latch onto the idea that it was possible because I had peers around me that all of a sudden were getting, opportunities yeah. and not just opportunities to act here or there, but maybe like a recurring on a series or a lead in a film. Um, and it became clear to me that, boy, it's possible. You even, in, you know, cause I thought, I didn't think Vancouver was somewhere where you could have a career. I thought you had to be like, I think the common misconception is you got to move to LA. Um, but people were doing it and I thought, okay, well maybe I can do this. Yeah. 
what was the first time that you were on set and you were working and you felt like, wow, I'm doing this. Uh, to be perfectly honest, it was, well, there was two, two moments um, for, as a, purely as an actor was um, the first job I booked, which was a very bad TV movie called Beyond Control. Beyond Control. But it happened to, uh, it happened to be a, a, a vehicle for Drew Barrymore, who was just making her comeback, um, you know, after a difficult, uh, you know, teenage, early 20s period where, you know, she'd kind of lost her way and was trying to find her way back. So it was one of her first comeback projects. And I was in that and I had literally, I think, two lines. But because we were supposed to be uh, from Long Island, they gave us dialect coaching and we had a table read with Drew and, you know, the director was asking me about choices about the character. And I was like, Oh my God, this is real. It's actually happening. And I was terribly nervous. And I think I probably did a terrible job, but uh, I did it. And it was sort of like, okay, here we go. This is fun. I'm going to, I'm going to want to do this again. And then you did it again. And then, you know, you know, it, it, it takes, takes time you, you you start to get out and really experience the world of auditioning and realize you're not going to book every job and there's yeah. lots of things that you want but don't get um and but yeah you you start to make your way and and uh you know i started to book a little bit more regularly and the parts got a little bit bigger here and there and i started yeah. to think yeah here we go so what is a jonathan lloyd walker role you know like mm. how are you how are you normally cast and when are you happiest in a role? <laughs> um, I would say it's probably 60, 40, 70, 30 bad guys. Mm -hmm. um, but they're usually, what I, you know, I guess this is the, maybe the vibe or the perception that I give off in casting. They're usually guys who are sort of smart, manipulative guys. Um, so I sort of think that sometimes I fall into the kind of Alan Rickman category. Mm. Uh, which is not a bad category to be in. It's, you know, character actor, um, devious, with an agenda. Uh, and then every once in a while I get to play somebody who's a little bit more noble and a bit, a bit more principled. Um, I get killed a lot. That's also what happens. I, yeah, I, I die a lot in the room. Do you have a favorite <laughs> way to die? What's been your favorite <laughs> way to die? Uh, there have been so many. Um, I think self-electrocution was probably uh, uh, one of the fun ways that I got to go out, which was... Self-electrocution? Yes, oh. yes. An, an episode of Outer Limits. And um, we were all trying to make this very pyrrhic stand for this alien race who didn't think that we were noble and self-sacrificing. And so we all, one by one, killed ourselves. <laughs> so that was the plot well, of that, that. You showed them. I sure did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Um, so I'm trying to figure out how to segue, a natural segue, mm. from mm. acting into show running. Mm -hmm. And I'll admit, when I've been talking to writers who, who are showrunners, it feels like such an easier segue to, to talk about. Uh, mm. I don't feel like this is an easy segue. So... I'm just going to say like when, how and when did show running present itself for you? And I'm talking about, you know, as being an associate producer, being a consulting producer, and then, you know, being an executive producer and showrunner. Like how did that happen? Because it doesn't seem like it's the natural progression, mm. you know, of, of somebody who is, you know, often 
of the guy who comes on to uh, murder somebody or die or, you know, cause a bunch of shit in the show, you know, and it's like, oh, he's going to be a showrunner. So that's my segue is to indicate that there's not a natural segue here. Yeah. Well, fair enough. No, there, there really isn't. And I'm, but I, I think it's important to sort of put into perspective the fact that the showrunner is kind of the destination job. It's not where you start. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone's falling out of, you know, um, being an actor and jumping straight into show running, uh, except for under exceptionally rare circumstances. So what I knew and what was always a component of my career since I started um, was that acting was what I was doing, but writing was something I did on the side. And that was how I sort of played it for the first decade or so. Mm. Uh, I was always writing projects. I was always trying to create things. I was always trying to get projects made. And I, I periodically was getting things sold or getting stuff produced, but it never caught fire as the focus. Um, and so it was probably about yeah, a little over a decade ago um, that I really started to think I've got to maybe think about putting more emphasis on the writing part of this. Mm. And so I didn't fall straight into show running. I started as every, every writer starts. I started on the bottom rung. I started as just a story editor yeah. and, you know, uh, worked my way slowly up. And again, with the help of friends, Simon Barry and I have been friends since teenagedom. And um, we were, when I said, you know, making little projects when I was a kid, one of the first films that I acted in was something that Simon wrote and directed and our other friend, Greg Middleton, Greg Middleton. Uh, was the cinematographer on who, for those who don't know him, is one of the guys who was an amazing cinematographer on Game of Thrones, on The Watchmen, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like he's uh, working right now uh, in the Marvel universe, like he's off the chain amazing what a so great a great group of friends so i'm sorry just just to go back because i'm from the west island myself were you friends with them in montreal or were you friends when you came out here because i know that they went to ubc right yeah no no um so what the well, of course my dog is barking in the background because we're doing this from home yeah <laughs> Yeah, your dog has something to say. I'm sure it's That's important. Right. Yeah. So here's the story. When I first came to Canada, before we moved here officially, my parents decided it would be good to try a six-month kind of trial run. Mm -hmm. And so we moved to Montreal um, when I was about nine for six months. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I was dropped into school. And I went to my first day of school. And the teacher said, well, look, we've got a new kid here from England. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't know where anything is. Can somebody show him around? Hey, you, you came here recently and you're new to the school. You show him around. And that person was Simon Barry. Oh my God. So the very first person I met in Canada, the very first friend that I made was Simon Barry. So we've been friends for over so 40 some odd years. I almost yeah. want to cry. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Wow. Imagine so if you hadn't began. met each other. Wow, it would a totally different life. Because I'm sure yeah. you two fed each other ideas and amazing. Yeah, so I went back to England for a few more years and then came back and sort of tried to pick up uh, where I left off with Simon. And Simon at that point had met Greg and they were already making like little claymation short films and animated things. And, <clears throat> and so, yeah, we just sort of fell back in and, and decided, hey, let's, let's make some films together. And... Uh, that was that. That's so sweet. I love it. Um, the stories that that you've been writing then, writing from from when you're a child, and and then you know up until 
a decade ago, I guess. Like, what did they have a, a single genre, or you know, what were what were you interested in? Did you want to write films? Did you want to write for television? All of it. I mean, I, yeah. I read, again, I mean, <clears throat> I, I, because I don't like to get pinned down in one category. I don't want one uh, track. Um, it was a little grab bag of everything. I mean, where it started was where I, you know, my, my wheelhouse is sci-fi. I mean, mm -hmm. I grew up watching piles of it and, 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 you know, aspiring to be in the universe of, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek and all that good stuff. So that was definitely a safety zone there. And, but I've, I've branched out and done a bit of everything, I've, you know, films, historical pieces, character dramas, um, horror, um, cop procedural, I've, I've sort of touched on a lot. And, and, I, and I constantly say to my reps, like, please don't ever pigeonhole me because it's not how I want to work. It's not how I want to be perceived. So yeah. um, that's sort of, from the writing standpoint, I've tried to explore as many different territories as I can. Has there ever been anybody in, in your life or in your orbit um, who has said, look, look, John, are you an actor? Or are you a creator of universes? You have to choose. Like, have you and have you ever had that conversation? And if so, what have you said? Well, I think there was definitely a period of time after I was, you know, building a career as an actor and, and work a working actor, you know, not having to do other jobs to sustain myself. When I was turning my gaze a little bit more to writing, there were certainly people who said, "Well, you know." you're going to get categorized as an actor who's of course got a script up their sleeve and people aren't going to really take you seriously. You're going to have to put some legwork into creating a footprint for yourself as a writer. And that was definitely around the point in time where I thought, yeah, I, I don't think anyone's really going to take these ideas seriously. Cause I was going to things like there's a television festival every year in Banff, yeah. Uh, which is really well known and um, it's a good opportunity to pitch lots of different people but I was showing up at Banff and I was just an actor with a satchel full of ideas mm -hmm. and they might like those ideas and they may think that that's great and interesting it could be a viable show or movie but they're looking at me going but you're an actor how you're not going to be able to deliver it mm -hmm. so I realized I had to shift and take writing more seriously and focus there for a while so that I could have more credibility yeah. Well, you sure got that credibility now. Um, okay. So I want to spend some time before I start kind of trying to shake you down for uh, Van Helsing spoilers um, or, or really just stories about Alex Ponovic, I guess, um, to talk about the about show running in general and then what a writer's room looks like in particular, because I know that I have a lot of listeners who are like eager to get into a writer's room, uh, you mm -hmm. know, so yeah. if we could pull, pull back the curtain a little bit and, and um, they can have a peek. But first of all, what are, what qualities do you think someone needs in order to run a show? Um, I think the most important thing for a showrunner is to have an ability to understand people's strengths and weaknesses. Um, not everybody, even a showrunner, is not a finished article in terms of their skill set, although it has to kind of be all encompassing. It's not going to be maybe top notch in every category. So you try to surround yourself with people who bring little pieces of things that are going to make you look better and make the show better. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're putting a room together, you want, it's sort of like putting together, and I, I hate to, you know, simplify people, but it's sort of like a tool set. You, you have to have a variety of different types of tools for different types of applications. Now I'm so, picturing a toolbox. Yeah. <laughs> and you're picking it. Well, we need the hammer and yeah. we need the screwdriver. Yeah. Because <laughs> what will happen in a room is, okay, so you know, what, I'd love, what I love is to try and stock a room with these types of people. So it's great to have somebody who is the structure person. Right. Who says, well, I think if we move this over here or if that came before that came, then we, we, that would be better. It would flow. You want a character person who's all about, oh, no, I, I, I want that character to be authentic in this moment. I think that they would have a different reaction because they're built in a different way. You want a dialogue person who has always the idea of the better thing to say in the scene or the thing to not say in this, you know, like just to yeah. finesse that. You want the idea person who's constantly spouting off the, well, what if, what if, what if, what if. Uh, so all of these are different skill sets and some people, most writers have a, a, an ability to do all of these things, but some are better in certain categories with something than someone else might be. Yeah. And so that tool set of, of talents of, of a writing room um, is what collectively makes the work better. In my mind, I've just started to envision it as like a Swiss army knife, you know, yeah. so it's all in one. Um, what... Okay, I have so many questions. I don't even know where to start. What are some common mistakes that new writers make in writers' rooms? Uh, well, there's one that's sort of the 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 lesson of extremes. So what I mean by that is there's the person who says nothing, who thinks I'm junior, I'm I'm low hanging fruit. I, I I should just sit here and stay quiet, and that is not the job. The, you're, you're part of a creative team, you need to contribute, and I want you to contribute, and any showrunner would. Um, then there's the over-contributor. The early writer who is, is very ginned up and excited with the ideas that they've got, and forcibly interjects them at every turn, and then doggedly hangs on to them even if they're told, I don't think so. Um, and that's a little bit of sort of slow death too, because, um, you have to, I think you, and I had to learn it. I certainly had to learn it. I certainly think early on I was an over-contributor and sometimes would get huh. too possessive of ideas. But you have to learn to kind of strike a balance and pick your moments and think about it a little bit in your own head before you contribute. So maybe the idea has already had a little bit of um, work done to it before you throw it into the mix. Um, and, you know, um, I think it's important in terms of making mistakes, don't be afraid to make them. Um, you're not expected to come in and know the landscape and know the job. And, um, you know, there's certain writing rooms where there absolutely is a hierarchy. There's a showrunner in place who very much wants you to know that you're, you know, in a junior rank. And then there's other much more embracing writing rooms. And I try to run one, um, where you try to treat everybody equally. You're still the arbiter. You're still the person who has to ultimately make the final decision as the showrunner. But I want everyone to feel that they have an opportunity to speak up and to throw their ideas into the mix. Yeah. In what ways do you, like, what do you do to make sure that your storytelling muscle is in peak form? You know, are you, are you watching a lot of other shows? Are you reading the paper? Are you having conversations? Are you trying to like just put everything in the zeitgeist into your head? Like, what do you do to make sure that, that you have everything that you need to tell stories? 
Uh, it's it's really a, a little bit of all of those things that you just said. Um, I, I think you definitely have to watch. If you're in TV, you've got to watch TV. Like mm-hmm. it's very it's odd to me. It only has ever happened once where I met somebody who came in for an interview in the, for a writing room job who said they don't watch television, and I thought <laughs> I don't understand that. How can that be possible? Because it's you have to understand. You know, there are things that emerge and new styles of storytelling and different type, uh, you know elements that pop up in shows where you think, oh my God, that's amazing and inspired. And and I want to try and see if we can bring an element of that in. So you have to kind of keep your finger in a bunch of what's going on. Um, And, uh, you know, you you observe, you're in life. I'm constantly in places or watching people and seeing things and thinking, boy, that's an interesting element that I've got to bring into a character or some dialogue. There's stuff you hear, people say, and you think that I could never write that because it's so uniquely brilliant because somebody just, it's just who they are. It, it just fell out of their mouth and I'm going to steal it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Can you repeat that again? What was the third word? Yeah. Ah. No reason. No reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you just sort of try to be an observer, I think, of, of everything and keep current on the, the news and, 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 you know, read whether that's magazines or books or short stories or comics, whatever it is, just try and be a sponge for human experience, I think is yeah. the key. I, I find this interesting as, as we are moving into talking about Van Helsing, Van Helsing being very much a, a sci-fi show. It's a post-apocalyptic show um, that begins where humans have lost in a war against vampires and, and uh, are the ones who are being hunted. Um, and yet, you know, especially recently, I've been going back and rewatching a lot of it. It feels also so very, very timely as well. Um, a lot of the, the conversations that are being had, a lot of the feelings that these characters are feeling, really feeling the, these feelings right now uh, in, in this, you know, I mean, we're in a global pandemic, right? You know, and Snowpiercer feels a little bit like that as well, but definitely Van, Van Helsing. In what ways do you think Van Helsing, you know, for for its lengthy run, has reflected what's going on in there's that word again, the zeitgeist. Mm. Well, I think when we began the show five years ago, six years ago, um, we were obviously in a very different place. Um, we were not only pre-pandemic, we were pre-Trump, we were pre a lot of things. And oh, uh, remember pre-Trump. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot of you know we could really dip our toes into you know bleak dystopia without people feeling like they were living it every day and um the things that have always resonated for the show but particularly resonate now are the idea of isolation the idea of not knowing who you can trust and that there's a danger that's looming that you don't know where it is and it could pop out and get you at any moment. And so as we're living through this fear of going out in public and getting sick, there is a parallel in the show just in terms of that fear of where I don't know when a vampire might get me and all I have left is my humanity and what is it worth? And, and, you know, how do I have it be worth something? Um, and people trying to people trying to have the faith to depend upon each other when they know that that that's risky. Yeah. So those sorts of themes, I think, are are relevant now, and particularly with the pandemic. Um, so it's interesting as well because obviously we got 
uh, our season five shooting was interrupted by the pandemic. And then we had to figure out how to come back and start shooting the rest of the season during the pandemic. And we were the first show back up. Yeah. Um, so we kind of had to figure out all those protocols. But not only that, we had to completely revamp because we'd written all the scripts. Yeah. And there was many of the scripts that I knew we weren't going to be able to produce as written because the circumstances had changed. And we spent a lot of time rewriting scripts to try and figure out how to justify why we couldn't have lots of extras, why we couldn't have lots of people embracing and being in close contact, what, why. And so those things have worked their way into the storytelling of season five. And I think it, uh, it actually was a happy accident in that regard. Yeah. Um, okay, fine. So you're bringing up seasons five. So I, I'm going to start talking about it. I know that you spent the good, the first few months, first couple of months of, of uh, last year in Slovakia, um, pretty much getting, getting to, sh- to shoot on these, like, I'm assuming you didn't have to do a lot of set deck to make, you know, everything look like ancient castles and stuff, right? Like, I'm assuming that was one of the benefits of, but what, so why did you go to Slovakia? And what was it like for, for you, you know, as this uh, Canadian showrunner, you know, putting on your show there, you know, to film, like, were there a lot of differences at all, you know, in the ways that they, they do things there as opposed to how we do things here? Uh, well, sort of to take those in order, the, 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 the why um, very much came out of the mandate I was given when I took the show over from Neil Labute, who was a fantastic mentor for me and was very generous and, um, you know, really helped shepherd me into this job. Mm. Um, the, the network had said, look, the, the, you're at a point, because I took over for season four, so I was showrunner for season four and five, and they said, look keep the DNA of the show, but if you want to do some stuff to spread your wings a little bit and make the show a bit more yours, have at her. And so I started to look at the show and figure out, well, what changes do I want to make? How do I want to spin it in a different direction? And partly because our wonderful lead, Kelly Overton, was quite pregnant for second time during our shooting and was going to be available on a limited basis. I thought, well, hang on, the show's Van Helsing, but we may not have our Van Helsing very much. So mm-hmm. I've got to invent some new Van Helsings. So that was when I came up with the idea of, of adding um, Kia King and Nicole Munoz as these two younger Van Helsings mm-hmm. and seeing what it would be like to follow a couple of teen- late teenagers, early 20s through the pandemic because we hadn't really looked, the show hadn't really looked through that lens particularly. Yeah. And that was the first part. And then the second part was as we got into season five and I knew that the show was coming to an end, um, I thought, well, to, to tee up where I want to land the show I kind of feel like I need to dig into the origin of how this all started in the first place. Mm-hmm. And when you've got a character that, you know, like Dracula, who hadn't been in the show for the first three seasons, and then we cast the amazing Trisha Helfer to play a female Dracula. I was like, okay, we, we got to dig into this. And where better to do that than in some beautiful Eastern European location with lots of castles and history and, and, and spooky landscape. And so I went to my, my bosses um, at Nomadic, uh, Chad Oaks and Mike Frisleff, and said, is there any possibility that we could start shooting and maybe shoot a chunk of the season in Eastern Europe? And they took me seriously and said, well, we'll look at it. And we started to break the numbers and look at the possibilities, and it all started to fall into place. And so creatively, I got this amazing gift to be able to go to Eastern Europe and shoot one of the castles we shot in is a place called Castle um, Orava. And Orava is where Murnau shot uh, Nosferatu, 
uh, back in the twenties. Oh, wow. uh, so it, it is this iconic place. And so we got to shoot there amongst many other places and it was a dream come true. So that's the first part. That's the, that's the why it's a long answer to it. Um, and in terms of the experience of shooting in Slovakia, we were incredibly blessed because I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know where we were based in Bratislava. There was really only two film crews. Um, and so you start to think, well, then maybe there's going to be some weak links. Maybe there's going to be some people who, uh, I'm going to open this door for one second. Sorry. Um, maybe there's going to be some people who don't have the skill set. But when we got there and we started meeting with people, not only did they have the skill set, but they were so excited and so passionate about the idea of being able to be part of this show. Mm. And they worked so hard. And so there was this amazing um, spirit uh, amongst the Slovakia crew that made me very, very comfortable that we were going to get great work. And um, they, they did. They pulled it off. The episodes that we shot there are incredible. I'm so excited. What? Okay. These are my very have to be careful questions and mm -hmm. you're going to tell me no about so many of them. Um, but it's public knowledge that you have some pretty incredible guest stars yes. coming on. Um, yes. You have Kim Coates. Yes. And you have Ali Liebert. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit, even a little, a little crumb about, um, what these brilliant thespians will be doing on your show? Well, Kim, who a lot of you, I mean, he's got a stellar resume of incredible work that he's done, but uh, most of you might know him from Sons of Anarchy. Um, he plays very much, he's a character who is part of that backstory that is entwined with the Dracula, the version of Dracula that I wanted to tell as an origin story. Yeah. So he is very key to that storytelling. And it isn't only told in flashback. It, it is sort of a, you know, without giving too much away, it, it is one of our main characters experiences this in firsthand and gets to be a part of the story. So it's not just telling you things that happen that don't have any relevance to what's happening in the season, it's yeah. very much organically part of the character journey for season five. And so Kim plays a character that's very integral to that. Allie, who I love and is an amazing talent and a good friend, um, she, I, she plays a character that is so enigmatic and so unpredictable and so unexpected that I couldn't be more proud of the work that she did. Um, and I think. It's going to be one of those, you know, I think because of the performance she gave, it's going to be one of those roles that's going to be total award bait because she's so good. Um, I can't get into too much about who she plays only because it would, it would blow the lid off of something that we're trying to keep a secret. Okay. 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 I won't ask. I won't ask. What kind of feelings are you carrying into then the next few months? I'm assuming we're going to get, uh, we are going to be getting a release date then for, you know, when season five, the final season will, will air. Are you, are you, do you, do you expect that you'll mourn the show? Are you excited to share it? Like what's going on? This is when it starts feeling like therapy. How are you feeling? How are you feeling, John? <laughs> Lie back on my couch, get out the <laughs> box of hankies. Um, 
there's look I, there's already been a little bit of mourning i mean you know we were we had a very loyal crew and an incredible cast who you know you ask alex ponovic he, he he heart and soul loves being a part of the show and when we shot the very last day i literally it was one of those moments where they, they called rap everyone had sort of congratulated each other and said you know good job, good job. And they were all heading out to put equipment in trucks. And I went to one of the sets where no one else was and I lay on the ground and I won't deny the fact that there were tears yeah. because it was that feeling of like, Oh, this thing that's been so important, you know, the, the doing of it and the people, that's yeah. the other part. You know, we, we live in this weird vagabond, you know, industry where you cross paths with people from time to time, but you bed in with people for multiple years yeah. and you get to know them and they become, you know, extended family and to walk away from that was very difficult. I had a hard time that last day. And then, you know, but I, the show didn't really leave me because I was in post-production with it and I have been since. So I'm still involved with the show, but my last day of principal or my last day of post will probably come in the next few weeks. Mm -hmm. And again, that'll be a little bit of a, Oh no, there it goes. Now it's all really officially done. Yeah. Um, and then I'm just into, I'm like everybody else. I'm just anxious to share it. Uh, with the fans who've been very patient because of COVID, you know, the show should have been shot and then aired in October, November, and, and we're still holding on to it now. But the good news is the network are super excited about it. They're putting some you know, promo money and some uh, marketing behind it. Um, they really want to give it a good launch and make, a, make the most of it. And I'm very happy about that. So as soon as we have a date, I will be very excited to share it. Well, I will be excited to shout about it from all the rooftops. Um, okay. There have been some super delicious characters on Van Helsing. Um, ones that are, you know, you're rooting for and other ones that you just love to hate. Do you have a favorite Van Helsing character? Wow. That's a really good question. Um, it's kind of like asking me to pick my favorite child, which that's the next kids. question. <laughs> My kids ask me all the time, who's your favorite? And I'm like, I love you all. You're all different and special. I feel that way about the characters a lot. Um, but I think, interestingly, because he's so different than me, I think the character actually, and he was only in the early seasons that I really related to the most, um, was Trezo Mohoro's character. Um, because he had this strange connection to Sam who again was this sort of surrogate father figure to him. Yeah. And there was all this, there was all this um, angst for him about trying to fit in to this world, but also whether he could, whether he could really live with the choices he was making and the, the person that Sam really was that he hadn't really owned up to and the struggle of just trying to have that relationship. Again, I talked to earlier in the interview about, you know, relationships and the distant um, relationships. And I think that was it for me. Trezo's character hmm. was, yeah, he really resonated for me. That's not what I thought you were going to say, but it's revealing. I thought you were going to say Vincent Gale's character. What? It's funny, actually. And Vince doesn't even know this. So when I was in the, the very first season of Van Helsing, when we were getting to casting, Neil and Simon was involved in the show in first season. And Neil said to me, he said, 
hey, you should read for this character, um, Flesh. You should read for this character. And I was like, no, 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 I, I, I really, I don't want to, I don't want to read for the character. And it just so happened that we were in a break while casting was going on. I went away for a week. I was in New Orleans for Mardi Gras. And Neil emailed me and said, no, 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 you should, you should really read for this. You should read for this. So I'm down in Mardi Gras and I have the sides and I'm like, do I want to do this? Do I want to read for this part? I don't know. It's, I don't think it's a good idea. But I read it and I sort of memorized it. And I thought, well, when I come back, I'm going to, I'll audition for them. And when I came back, feeling sort of mixed feelings about it, Neil very sheepishly approached me and he said, oh, oh while you were gone, I think we found, I think we found the guy. And I was like, oh, oh. Who, who, who is it? And I, I was feeling a little bit attached to it at that point because I'd actually committed to maybe reading for it. He said, well, you know, this guy, Vince Gale. I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, Vince Gale is this character. Yes. We, we, are, we go no further. I will throw the sides away. And, um, and that was that. And uh, it was amazing. Um, Vince did an incredible job. And, you know, I felt a little bit bad for him towards the end because I think in the sort of jigs and the reels of it all, that his character was one that I think f fell through the cracks a little bit towards the end. We tried to redeem it with this amazing story in season four of how he tracks down his wife and child and, and, and tries to make right for some of the horrible things that happened in their past. Mm. Um, I think we gave him a redemptive end, but there was definitely a period of time there where we kind of, we didn't give him the kind of material that I think would have, elevated the show and given him the chance to shine to the degree that he can. And it's all, that's been one of my regrets of the show that we didn't service his character well enough. I love that you've said that and you've put it out there and I'm going to make sure that Vince Gale listens. Um, okay. That's all I had to ask you about Van Helsing because seriously, I am, I am so looking forward to season. I mean, I'm kind of dreading it because it's the last season, uh, but I, I have been just so hungry. So ever, ever since I knew that you guys went to Slovakia as well, I was like, what is going on? I just want to put it in my eyeballs. Um, I'd love to speak for a couple of minutes in, in more general terms about the, the Canadian television industry, Canadian productions. Like how would you describe, you know, because we are here in Vancouver, a service town largely serving American productions, you know, but we do have some, some shows that are independent, you know, and Canadian, Canadian owned and operated. Um, how would you, you know, looking across the country, uh, but with here as our starting point, describe the health of our Canadian television industry, you know, and if it ain't doing so well, what are some things that you think that we can do to, Buoy it, make it better, elevate, mm. amplify, embrace our own. Well, I think maybe we'll just sort of say pros and cons. I think, I think we're definitely in a period where it's peak TV. So there's a lot of production that's here and mm -hmm. some of it obviously is a foreign service production, but there's some Canadian shows that are kind of really making a name for themselves in other markets. Mm -hmm. So the fact that a Kim's convenience can travel to the States, the fact that, you know, a Murdoch Mysteries is in 135 countries around the world. Uh, the fact that a Schitt's Creek can win all of the awards, all of them in Hollywood. Uh, that says a lot because those shows did not start out as co-productions with an American network who was holding yeah. their hand. Those are purely Canadian shows that have made a huge impact 
Letterkenny is another great example. So we're at a place where we're starting to find our way to making shows that are uniquely and independently Canadian, but have something to say to the world. And I don't know that that's always been the case. So that's very healthy. And I'm very encouraged by the fact that networks here are willing to take a chance on doing material that doesn't follow some cookie cutter American version network style show that's just set here. Um, that's sort of a big part of it. And, and I really believe that the creatives are supportive, um, you know, that the executives are supportive of the creatives. So there's a lot of avenues, which is great. The difficulty is we're still in a place where I think that there's a, there's a geography issue with Canada. There always has been. And that is most of the Canadian networks are rooted around Toronto. And there's a real somewhat of a closed club there where they every once in a while will do a token show somewhere else, but they're really largely interested in producing shows in and around the GTA. And I would love for that to change. It would be much, much healthier for them to say, hey, wait a second. There's all this incredible talent and all this incredible resources and crews and locations to shoot in Vancouver. We should have more production going on in Vancouver. What I think is gonna be a game changer for that is the increase in OTT. So Amazon, your Hulus, your Netflix, Netflix recently announcing that they're gonna increase Canadian production and actually start a dedicated Canadian wing of Netflix to make shows here that's by Canadian creatives for a Canadian market, but an international market as well. That's a very encouraging sign because it'll, it'll break up some of the old school East Coast um, prejudice that's been a part of our industry for a long time. Yeah. And they will look at it in a more, you know, where's the best place to tell a story? Oh, let's put it in Vancouver. So that's a good thing. And, I, and I'm, I'm very hopeful that it moves the needle. You have actually succeeded in make, making me feel more hopeful about all of this than I have in a long, long time. Because uh, usually I just kind of shake my fist at the, at the center of the universe that is Toronto and be like, we have all of this incredible talent. We have all these amazing storytellers. We have the infrastructure. And yet the national broadcaster doesn't have one single scripted series set here. You know, like they should be taking advantage of everything. Yeah everything that we have, but you know, I'm doing my own part to build some bridges across the country too, you know, uh, in, including with the Canadian Screen Academy. So who knows? You're doing a great so, job. And you. you know, and I, I said it to you. I wasn't you fishing for compliments, but please. No, so but I'm going to give you one. I'm going to give you one anyway, because <laughs> I, I said it to you before we started recording this, but you, you provide a really uh, valuable, uh, much needed and hugely appreciated spotlight on the talent, um, not just, you know, uh, of the country, but specifically here in the Vancouver area, you, you really have been a, a guiding light for a lot of people and given people, um, you know, a footprint, uh, and an opportunity to showcase themselves. And so I thank you for that on behalf of everybody because you do a great job. Thank you so much. Well, then I'm going to skip all the really hard questions I was going to ask you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I'm, I, do, I do want to ask you about what the fuck moments. Oh. What the fuck moments. Do you ever have like, and it can be taken a certain way. So there's mm. the, what the fuck? This is actually my life. Or, mm. Mm. What the fuck? This is actually my life. I'm not an actor. I'm assuming you can see some difference between them. You know, do you have what the fuck, this is actually my life moments? And if so, when do those happen for you? Yeah, I, they, they happen in different ways. And I think it's an important distinction to make about them because some of them are very egocentric. 
And yeah. some of them are more kind of like, oh, wow, this is kind of cool. It's everybody. So I'll give you an example of both. So one of the great ones was um, as an actor, uh, anytime you get an opportunity to go down to LA and do the whole premiere thing, mm -hmm. that's a pretty big deal because, you know, I've done one at, at uh, the um, Mann's Theater across from the Roosevelt Hotel on Hollywood Boulevard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thousands of people behind barricades and, you know, a hundred paparazzi. And you kind of feel like, oh, wow, this is what I thought it would be like, but way bigger. Mm. And I had uh, finished watching the movie that I was down there for. And I came out of the theater with two of the leads who are big, big stars. And, you know, pictures are being taken. And everyone, they were about to head off to get in their limos because they were being taken to the after party. And... I was there with my wife and we parked our rental car in the parking lot across the road from the theater. Mm -hmm. And we, we said, okay, well, we'll see you at the party. And we walked to the velvet rope. And I did have that moment of like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Like we're in the center of it all. And we dipped underneath the velvet rope to go back to our rental car. And as soon as we passed the velvet rope, we were just back to being normal people. Like we were just on the other side of the looking glass. Yeah. And so that was an interesting perspective to have to kind of go, well, that isn't real. That's kind of a thing that we've created, but don't ever believe that that's real or normal because it isn't. Mm -hmm. So that was a good sort of what the fuck moment. And then the other one for me that I would say is on the writing front is just being in a position of sitting on a, on a set and watching actors, you know, say the words and all these people are there and they're all making it happen. And you get a certain sense of pride that all of these things are happening and the connective tissue is, is that you, you get to share this great experience with all these amazing people and you're very instrumental in the whole execution of it. And there's a pride that I think comes with that of like, wow, we're making a show. We're making a show. And that's very rewarding. And, and, um, and I, you know, I've got so many good friends in the industry and to get to work with them is just a blessing. Hashtag blessed. Yep. <laughs> Those are wonderful answers. Okay. I got one more question for you. If you could go back in time to the very beginning of your career, what, what advice would you give yourself or would you not say anything at all? Ooh. Um, do you know what? I think I, I have thought about this a little bit. I think the big lesson is, and it's, 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 it's multi-layered, but the, distill it down to this. Don't get in your own way. Mm. And I, what I mean by that is, on the one hand, don't get in your own way by believing that you're not capable of what you want, of what your dreams are. Right. Because you can chase after them, and I've been incredibly lucky to have um, you know, an opportunity to do a lot of different things and, and, in, and have enjoyed the, the ride. So there was times where I doubted it, or I thought, I'm not gonna put that audition on tape today, or I'm not gonna send that person my script because I don't know if it's good enough. And, and I pushed through, and I think I'm glad I did. The other part of don't get in your own way is don't ever start to drink the Kool-Aid in terms of your own ego, in terms of your own belief about things, try to keep a really healthy perspective about the journey. Because there were certainly points in time where I had a couple of little ego moments along the way in my career where I was like, wait a second, don't they know who I am? Why, why would I be brought in for that small part when I've been playing these bigger parts? Or something like that, mm -hmm. where you're like, no, hang on a second. 
just do the work. Just stay humble, do the work, make the connections, enjoy the process, and don't get in your own way. So it's, that's really it uh, in a nutshell. I would say that. Do you think you would, you would listen? <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I would have been able to grasp it because I think this is the thing about advice, right? Is that if you've lived, if you've lived the experience, you have the perspective to be able to look back on it and think about changes. But when you're in the midst of it and you don't have the experience, it's just words that somebody's saying to you that you're like, yeah, sure. Okay. Well, whatever. Yeah. You can't tie it to any, anything that's necessarily relevant in that moment. So I don't know if I would have listened, but I probably should have. <laughs> it's not going to happen unless we make a time travel device. Time travel. And <laughs> or, or you can write it, you write it and, and see how it plays out. Jonathan Lloyd Walker. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today uh, and hearing your dog as well. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I yearn for, I have cats. Um, I, I grew up with big dogs, though I miss them so much. Where can our listeners find you, follow you, celebrate you on social media? Thank you. Um, I've got um, Twitter handled at J underscore L underscore Walker. Uh, I think it's the same on Instagram. Um, my website, www.jonathanloydwalker.com. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm out and around. If you see me, say hi. Okay. And there, is there an official Van Helsing account that people can follow as well to get the, the latest? Because, you know, we're all dying to know when we can finally start watching this. Damn it, Jonathan. Yes. There, well, there's at Sci-Fi Van Helsing. Uh, there is um, at Van Helsing Writers. Uh, those are our two sort of Twitter accounts that we haunt and occasionally post things on. And just me, if they follow me, I, I tend to be the person, like rather than going through the official accounts, if I've got something to share, I kind of throw it up on my own feed. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Uh, please like and subscribe. Leave us a review if you are so inclined. That helps us find even more listeners. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YBR Screen Scene. The YBR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Ronnie Mira Firminger. I am the only one to blame. And it's edited by Simon Firminger. Special thanks to Mariana Furminger for recording our Patreon ad and to Paul Furminger for technical support. Yes, we are a family business. And to Dane, not Furminger, Davile for the original music. Wavier Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic, dynamic film and television scene. And cut! In the current COVID-19 environment, UBCP Actra the BC Performers Union in the film and TV industry, has been working closely with industry partners, formulating sensible and practical guidelines for all cast and crew to ensure working on set is manageable and safe for everyone. UBCP ACTRA has created a dedicated COVID-19 webpage at www.ubcpactra.ca where members can find mental health resources, financial assistance information, and back-to-work strategies and updates about the current status of film production in the province of British Columbia. UBCP ACTRA knows this has been an extraordinarily difficult time for many people, and we look forward to better days ahead. 
We will get through this together. Please visit www.ubcpactra.ca. A message from UBCP Actra.